Nutrition is a pretty detailed and maybe even complex subject. I've covered it a few times on this show. So, just to make things interesting, I'm doing it again. Only this time, my guests and I are discussing anti-nutrients. It can seem like a lot, but it's not the Star Trek challenge it might seem it is. If that's too geeky for you, no explosions happen when nutrients and anti-nutrients exist in the same place. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 196. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My guest today is Daphne Olivier, a dietitian who followed the usual path of attending a university and worked the usual jobs a dietitian would work, such as working at a hospital and then a hospital cafeteria and an ICU and a nursing home. Then she changed. She saw a presentation, which she'll mention, and that's part of the story of why Miss Daphne is here. Hello, Daphne. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me today. It's my pleasure. I'm interested and excited about this because I've done, the listeners know I've done a few shows on on food, going after the FDA and the USDA and the whole crime against humanity called My Plate. Um, I've talked to a biochemist about sugars and fats and how everything we're told by those who tell us things is wrong. So we, we've covered nutrition and nutrients. Today we're going to talk about something that's different, anti-nutrients. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, I can't nutrient anymore! It's, I'm sorry, it's a really bad James Doohan Scotty with, you know, antimatter matter. That's a very veiled Star Trek reference. So before we get, <laughs> rescue myself from this very, very <laughs> bad turn, and so let's do just a brief bio of you, how you got into um, nutrition, and then your very interesting, at least, Facebook name. And, and I've seen you on clips from your local news channel. You, you have a fun title. So let's talk about the fun title and then let's dive into this. Okay, so my business name is called The Unconventional Dietitian. And that came about, so it, just kind of going back into my history, I always knew that I wanted to be a dietitian for the reason that uh, when I was growing up, my family was always dieting. So I felt like, you know, this is this would be an easy field for me to go into because I've grown up with it all my life. And so I went to, uh, to college, I became a dietitian in a conventional, um, conventional dietetics program. And, um, you know, went on and got, um, did an internship at the VA hospital and became a registered dietitian. And it was a a while I had a, a, a rogue friend that, we would always talk nutrition. She was a massage therapist and we would talk about nutrition all the time. And she would tell me these like really bizarre things about nutrition. And I was like, look, I'm the, I'm the nutrition expert. Okay. And I was trained. I've got this background, you know, I have a a degree in nutrition. I'm, I'm kind of the expert and, um, very arrogantly saying this. And, she kept, I mean, her name is, she's my best friend now, but we used to call her Wacky Jackie because she would come up with these really crazy things or just crazy nutrition things. And so one day I ended up watching something that she had been encouraging me to watch for a long time. And um, it was a Sally Fallon video. I don't know if you're familiar with Sally Fallon. She's yep. the, the founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Um, the Oiling of America was the name of the it was just a YouTube video that I watched and it really answered one of the questions that I had about nutrition that never really made a whole lot of sense in my training. And so that was 
gosh, that was probably 15 years ago. And so once I watched that, I became very angry with the way that I was taught about nutrition because it didn't take long for me diving into the nutrition world into the actual research of, of nutrition to understand that what I was taught was not necessarily true. And so I became very, very angry because I was still, I still had student loans. I'm still paying for this education that I got that turned out to be, um, in many cases, not all of it, but turned out to be just a little bit misleading. And the only thing I ever wanted to do is be a dietitian to help people better understand nutrition and health and, and really kind of help them um, feel better, both physically, you know, more energy, um, be able to hold their their body weight better. But also, you know, I find that nutrition builds a lot of self-confidence in people in a whole variety of different ways. But so that's all I ever wanted to do was to be a dietitian and to help people. And then I realized, you know, probably close to 10 years into my career that a lot of the things that I had been saying was incorrect. And so that led me down the rabbit hole of understanding nutrition in a way that's very different from the way I was taught nutrition. And so early in my career, I had in my private practice. So I have, I've worked in hospitals and outpatient settings and various kitchens and things, but I started my private practice about 12 years ago and my practice had a different name, but people would introduce me like, Oh, this is Daphne. She's the unconventional dietitian. And that was way cooler than my original private practice name. So I was like, you know what, let me, let me rebrand and adopt this name because um, it better, it, it's a better description of the way that I practice nutrition. And certainly presents right up front exactly what you're going to get. Right. Exactly. I would imagine. So, so following the path that you're supposed to follow, go to the schools, listen to what the schools tell you, accept what they tell you as doctrine, dogma almost, and, and then go out in the world and go to the place <laughs> and go to the places where this will do the most good because we've studied this. Go to the hospitals, and uh, a fellow, um, he's a keto guy in Texas. And we've had a couple. He's been on the show a couple of times, and one of the one of our talks was about the absolute horror of hospital food, where it's <laughs> it's spaghetti and apple juice and orange juice and toast. It's like. My God, there's no food in this plate. So, so that's a whole, so, that can be a whole separate show. And yeah, it can be. It, 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 it was and it can be. There's a lot behind that. But I will say that the hospital, the inpatient hospital setting is not a time to teach nutrition. No. That, that's not the time. In, in the world of things that we eat. And there's the, it, it, there is a subfield of of biotics. Now, most of what we're going to hear, we know about antibiotics. We are the pills that that we take to fix things that are wrong with us. And then there's not new, but becoming more mainstream, the probiotic. So this is setting up the pro and the anti. So we have uh, probiotics, antibiotics. Now we have this, we have nutrients. We don't think about them as being pro-nutrients until right. we discover there's something called Anti-nutrients, and if you're <laughs> if you're saying to yourself as a listener, wait a minute, what's he talking about? This is science fiction. Well, I'm not sure it's science fiction, but you're not really told about it. So we're going right. to dig into what anti-nutrients are, where. Well, it's it's a big field, and so the thing that I read that caused me to find you was uh, about soy. And in soy, now we're, we're told by lots of folks, vegetarians and vegans alike, and, and possibly even mainstream people, that soy protein's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I think as a statement, possibly that, that could be true. I don't know definitively that it's 100% false, but I think there's a lot of things going on in the food soy industry that makes that statement at least questionable. And so... Talk to me about, briefly, about what soy is, if it's good or if it's bad. And then let's talk really about the bad thing, because there was, uh, I'm going to, there's 
terms that are foreign to me. I can't remember them or say them because I've never run them before, but mm -hmm. things like phytates and tannins and lectins and similar sounding, not the same, leptin. And uh, right. you mentioned phytonutrients. So I'm like, wait a minute, this is, it's enough to make your head spin. So can we, can we start, at, let's start very simply. First, what's a nutrient? Then what's an anti-nutrient and what happens when those two things meet? Okay, so th these are this is a lot of questions, but yeah. I'll talk about um, the way that I break it down. So just to be clear, I'm not a food scientist, okay? So I am a nutrition educator, for lack of a better term. Um, but the way that I like to break things down is that we have macronutrients. Macronutrients are the things we call a macro because we eat them in large quantities. So that's going to be carbohydrates, protein, and fat. Those are our only three macronutrients. This is where most of our calories come from. Um, so whenever we talk about those, those, those terms, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, are pretty well-versed. Most people have heard of those. You know, there are lots of diets that are uh, focused on eliminating one category or decreasing or however you want to look at it. Uh, but then we also have micronutrients. And micronutrients are vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients. So some examples of those, your vitamins would be things like vitamin B12 or the whole complex of, of B vitamins, vitamin D, um, vitamin C. So you know, we've heard of most of these. Then your minerals are going to be things like um, calcium, potassium, uh, zinc. So these are things that we eat in much smaller amounts, either milligrams or micrograms, which is why we'll call them micronutrients. And then phytochemicals or phytonutrients are things that are found in plant foods primarily or plant foods, foods only. And they're essentially what gives food color. So that's going to be things like um, lutein and... Um, uh, I, I just had totally blanked on the other one I was thinking of. Um, but those are things that are much less talked about. So we don't really hear a lot about phytochemicals or phytonutrients. And quite frankly, the research is coming out. You know, there's a lot of research being done on these, but we in the nutrition world really don't understand or know the full um, concept or the full idea of what's happening with these phytochemicals and phytonutrients um, to, to really understand in the full spectrum, what they do, why we need them, and how they interact with other nutrients. So, can I interrupt you one second? Mm -hmm. Are the are the phytonutrients the pigments in the in the foods? Yeah, they would be the pigments, the things that are that are giving the foods color. So whether it's you know the colors of blue or the colors of green or red, all of those those pigments. I mean, so when I think of pigment, I think of something that's being dyed, but and it's essentially what is what is providing color for the for the plants. So the phytochemicals are phytonutrients. And those words are used interchangeably. Um, those are the actual things that are that are giving color to that that plant. Now I know that so we have chlorophyll and carotenoids for the carrots. I know that anthocyanin, the from red or red onions and eggplant to peppers, that for some people is a pretty big source of of irritation, either intestinal or body aches and pains. Uh, we had a lady on another doctor. Texas is a big place. Um, she she's in. I think she's an MD focusing on wellness, but she, in her own, herself, has her own experiment, eliminated all aranthocyanins, and a lot of her problems went away. Now, there's more to the story than that, and I'll put the episode link on the show notes page, but there's, that's an, in, an interesting observation that sometimes the things that should be good for us Red onions are delicious. I love them. You know, eggplants cause right. people problems. So the reality is that if any food that we look at, so the people always ask, is this healthy? We try to put foods in buckets of if it's healthy or if it's not healthy. Um, and, you know, my mom used to always say, is this food fattening? I'm like, I don't know exactly what you, if you, if what you're asking me is, will this food make you gain weight? Then, you know, I can say yes or no, depending on what the food is. But so we always want to categorize something as good or bad. 
And the reality is that in nutrition, almost every single food, no matter how, you know, quote unquote, good it is, or no matter what health benefits or health properties it may have for one person, it also has something that may not work for someone else. So we can't necessarily put foods in buckets of good or bad. I always think of food as being on a spectrum. So something can be really, really can work really well for one person, but really cause issues for another. So I'll say broccoli as an example. So normally when people start eating a healthy diet, the automatic thing that goes that comes to mind is baked chicken with broccoli and a sweet potato. I mean, that's a very, very common healthy meal, you know, and people will come into my office and they're like, I can't eat any more baked chicken, broccoli and sweet potato. I'm done with that. Like, okay, well, let's explore other options because there are lots of other options. But um, with that being said, Broccoli has a lot of really great benefits to it, lots of properties. It can help with detoxification of hormones. Um, it, but for some people, broccoli does not work because it causes, the way that it reacts with, their, with the bacteria in their GI tract causes gas. And sometimes it's gas in excess where it's not just a little passing gas, it causes debilitating pain. So to say that broccoli is healthy or not healthy is very irresponsible, I'll say, as a as a educator to say that something is healthy or, or not healthy um, in the umbrella term that everybody should eat this or everyone should should not eat this. There are some foods that I think that fall into that always healthy bucket or I mean, really more always unhealthy bucket. But as far as other, you know, all foods have components to them that can make them um, not work for a certain subset of people for a variety of reasons. Right, I think, and anyone who, I'm not going to avoid the word diet, because anyone who eats, probably, if you pay attention to what you eat and how you feel from half an hour to a few hours to maybe the next day, starts to put some correlation to things and say, well, you know, I like that, but it doesn't like me. And so they, they figure this out without necessarily even having any chemistry or science behind it. They just say, boy, <laughs> I don't feel good the day after eating that food, so I'm not going to eat that food anymore. Uh, and I think for, for the listener who says, oh, boy, you know, that happened to me, that, doggies are doggies, um, that's a good place to start paying attention, what is the group of that food? Maybe that happens with other things in that big family. And now, if you're feeling uh, inflamed or bloated, or if you're feeling something less than stellar, now you have a place to begin doing some research and figure out how can I how can I feel stellar? Because feeling stellar is a good thing. Right. Um, we have fats, proteins, and carbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the micronutrients, the vitamin D, vitamin B, vitamin A, uh, all the all the Bs, the K, and then the manganese and magnesium and copper and zinc and selenium and oh, what there's are eighty of them or something like that. So that's a, a well-rounded diet. I, I, I can't. I'm, I, my own personal foible is I can't stand the word of a balanced diet. That's but that's my own baggage. <laughs> Somewhere in here, where so we, we've, this is the basics of nutrition. We're eating things that are good for us. Uh, I am personally opposed to, I love sugar. Boy, do I love sugar. But sugar doesn't love me too much, and I don't think sugar loves anybody too very much. Right. But that's also another show. Um, and we need to do that show. Um, so let's go back to this soy and this anti-nutrient thing. So what's, if the nutrients are kind of a technical term, bioavailable, reading things that our body can use to, well, right now we're talking about to the benefit of human well, health and wellness, then where so this thing phytates or these anti-nutrients things that are coming in anti sounds bad so first of all are anti-nutrients bad antibiotics make us well maybe anti-nutrients aren't bad and if they're bad big question how 
are anti-nutrients bad? Okay, so anti-nutrients, the term re- relates to something that will not allow your body to absorb a nutrient. Okay, so in the development, the growing and the development of plants, they have to have some kind of protective mechanism for the, for the plant to be able to grow, to fight off any kind of insects. And oftentimes that comes in the form of the way that I think of it. So if you look at it, you're not necessarily going to see it like this, but I think of it as being a protective shell or protective coating that is found on different types of plants. So we see it a lot in things like nuts and seeds, um, which again, we always want to put it in the healthy bucket because there, it does have beneficial properties. Um, but in the growth of uh, various types of nuts, they have what's called anti-nutrients, which, like I said, I think of it as an invisible shield that is used to protect that, that plant. So if an, uh, an insect goes to eat it, it's going to make it hard for the insect to digest that particular plant, which will keep it from wanting to eat that plant again. So it it develops the intelligence to know that, okay, I can't eat that plant because it's going to, you know, it's not going to work well for me. So as humans, we want to ingest some of these foods and it still has these anti-nutrients on it. So what it means whenever something is an anti-nutrient is that it's a component, a natural component, usually natural within the plant that blocks the absorption of the other nutrients that we talked about, the vitamins and minerals. Different types of anti-nutrients block different types of, um, of nutrients, but this doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't have these foods. We might need to be cautious. In some cases, you may have to, you may not be able to have it at all. But being cautious of how we um, pair foods together can also play a role. So let me just, I'm going to invent this situation that's going to sound weird to the listener. Again, it sounds kind of weird to me. I don't think I'd eat it. But let's say peanuts have an anti-nutrient that blocks the absorption of chlorophyll. So sautéing a big bowl of spinach or kale with chopped peanuts would create a dish that is actually turning out to be unhealthy only in the ass well that weird word that unhealthy that that's creating a situation where that specific anti-nutrient is making the chlorophyll less or totally unavailable to the person eating it so they're not getting any benefit from the chlorophyll. Well, I would so, say making it maybe a little bit less absorbable. So if you have, okay. um, you know, if we start to really break down and, and try to digest, pun intended, um, all of the anti-nutrients and, and how to um, put things together, um, it, we can create a huge headache for ourselves. So I would say if you're going to saute a bowl or a large container or something of spinach and kale, that has a lot of chlorophyll in it. So you would have to eat a fair amount of peanuts to, and I don't know the ratio because I don't, because this is a, um, not a, a real situation. So I don't, and, and this is not something, it's not the way it's researched, but you'd have to eat a lot of that to be able to block all of the chlorophyll that's in there. Okay. So I wouldn't say that it's, it's not beneficial. Um, I would say that there is some, some components in the nut that would be blocking some of the components in the, um, in the vegetables, but it doesn't mean that it's a wash. So the last thing that I would want people to walk away from this conversation thinking is that, well, maybe I shouldn't, you know, cause the more that we talk about it and the more that we unpack and explore anti-nutrients, um, people could come away with the idea of thinking, well, if it, if it has things in there that are not, that are going to block the absorption of nutrients, I might as well just go eat this bag of potato chips because that, I'm not getting nutrients that way either. So, you know, I don't want to at all lead to that, um, that possibility or excuse for people to eat junk food. Um, you do still get other nutrients if you're eating something, even if it's paired with an anti-nutrient. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. And that's often when, I'm thinking about or having conversations with people about food who know things about food, who studied diet, either like the keto guy, Jimmy, who doesn't, didn't go to school for this, but Jimmy has been, he's been down some very deep rabbit holes and he knows a tremendous amount about how the body works. 
uh, or Kyle, the biochemist, who definitely went to school for this. It's easy for me to say, you know, this is a weird, this is, it looks kind of like first world problems because 100 years ago, right. our great grandparents, they just ate. I don't, and if it didn't taste good, they didn't eat it because it didn't taste good. They didn't think about, well, what is the chemical, microchemical, what is the composition of this particular plate of food? Shut up. Give me the food. I'm hungry. I worked all day. And I don't know. More than a few things can be in play. Part of the thing that I'm certain is in play is the food then was much more wholesome in the sense that it it was as close to it could be as the real food as it is now with <clears throat> how many times has cereal grains been adulterated and transformed and fiddled with so that you increase the yields but in this time of doing that all of these other unintended consequences happen which probably are uh, causing humans harm and maybe in the end causing more harm than any benefit that they're creating from eating the product again that's who knows somebody might but i don't know also i think there was a simpler simpler time then although they probably would have thought how hard it was um, so it's hard to say that, and I don't think they're equal, but at the same time, we have what we have. We, have, <laughs> we come home from work, we do the thing, we want to play the food without recognizing that in some cases, opening the packet of air, scare quotes food, the packet might be better than what's inside because it's, they're both almost pure chemistry. So how this is just another rabbit hole of, of of teaching educating what's really food and what isn't really food yeah. and that's but you know, we were talking before we started recording one of the, the comments was how you know who who wins the battle of what people see and your you have to say it because i can't remember what your your answer was but um who wins the battle Oh yeah, the the food food producers, the food industry. Big ag, big ag, and big meat. Although probably not as much as the you know maybe less so, but big ag certainly is winning. Um, well, I would also say some of our other food manufacturers, you know, like Frito Lay and Nabisco, and you know these other that are making mega money on. Um, not to mention even fast food. You know the whole chains of fast food making mega money on. Um, the misleading of of food education nutrition education i mean the, the list goes on and on and on because they're making lots of money so the way that i kind of break this down in my head because you know in the beginning i, I told you my story about better understanding nutrition and what it kind of boils down to, to me. And so I see, I have nutrition, the way that I think about nutrition personally. And then I work with people in my private practice all the time who are coming. I mean, that's, that's what I do. Um, and they're wanting to just feel better in general. And so if we start to break down all of nutrition, we can really see, like I said, that, that one individual food, just like a person, a human, they have pros and cons. You know, they have things that work really well with other foods and things that may be a negative factor for that particular food. Um, but we can't start eliminating all foods that potentially could have an issue because we would have nothing left to eat. So what I think it boils down to, and there's a lot that's to be said about individualized nutrition, but we still need to eat foods in their whole most natural form, even though it may not necessarily, it may have a component that would work against us. So what I mean by that is something like um, oxalates are a, a, a type of anti-nutrient that's found in like spinach. Oxalates will block calcium. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that spinach doesn't have any good properties because we know that spinach, especially in the nutri in the vegetarian world, spinach is considered to be a high iron food. And I don't, I know that iron comes mainly from animal products, but, um, so some people will take, will eat spinach for the amount of iron that it has in it, pair it with a little bit of vitamin C, and then they're absorbing some of that iron more so than they would be absorbing iron. It, it, 
iron from other plant-based foods. Um, so we can't just say that because spinach has oxalates that can block calcium, that we shouldn't ever have spinach. I think what it really boils down to is we need to have a variety of foods. So we need to have some spinach and we need to have things like beets that have a different color and different, different nutrient profile. And then things like uh, more, un you know, things that are more uncommon. So we need to have things like pumpkin and acorn squash and, you know, foods that have different colors and different varieties. And not to say, not to hone in on the fact that some foods have anti-nutrients in them. And so we should cast them out as not being beneficial. And I think that's what easily can happen when you start digging into, um, well, if this, you know, if, um, if nuts have, phytic acid on them, then maybe I shouldn't have nuts anymore. Well, if that's the way that you want to, you want to go about it, then maybe, you know, you can avoid nuts, but it, it eliminates another nutrient profile that can have beneficial properties too. If, I, I follow that line of thinking. I think that that's probably right. When I look into the grocery carts of the people I have no idea who they are in the grocery mm -hmm. store and the God. horrifying. This is this is this is unkind, but it's not I mean it's 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 an observation. Generally the body type of the person and the items in the cart have a correlation to each other. Mm -hmm. And usually the people not always, but more often than not, the obese people are the ones buying all the all the packaged stuffs, lots of diet soda, cases, cases of diet soda, mm -hmm. uh, all the sugary drinks, all the sugary foods. There isn't actually any food in those buggies, and they're filled to the top. And Absolutely. It's so no I surprise to me that this is how that person looks. And I don't know what the I don't even know if they see a doctor, but I I I struggle to figure out what a, what would a doctor, not a dietitian, because I, I think doctors get, for the most part, I think they get next to nothing in actual nutritional information. I think they get told this is what the FDA says and this is what you need to say and let's move on to surgery. Um, but they're not eating for wellness. They're, they're, I'm not even sure they're eating for sustenance. Well, so the majority of, of people who are just out there without a whole lot of, you know, effort put towards their nutrition are really just eating for convenience. I mean, that's the majority of, of the people who even are interested in wanting to do better. Convenience trumps everything. And so if we can make foods more convenient, even though it may have some, um, some potential anti-nutrients in them, convenience is the top priority for everyone. Very, very, very few people want to spend time in the kitchen on a regular, on a daily basis, or maybe every other day basis, preparing foods for themselves that are nutrient dense. Very few people. That's that's the people that I see. I mean, those are the people coming into my office. Um, so people are always looking for the most convenient. I mean, just like I'd say this about nutrition, because this is the field that I'm in. But just like anything, we want it to be very convenient, not have to work too hard for it, but also very beneficial. And the reality is that in the nutrition world, that's really, really hard to do. And so as you know, if we're, if we're looking at and trying to unpack what is the best, you know, what's the best kind of diet for the, the humanity as a whole, so not in any individual person, the best kind of diet is going to be things that are in their most natural form. So vegetables, fruits, um, meats. I'm not a vegetarian. I don't really promote vegetarianism, although I, I do think that it can be done. It requires a lot of um, a lot of effort to make it done well, but so I do think that whole meats are beneficial. Um, but once we start and, and whole grains, you know, to some extent, um, our nuts and seeds, beans and legumes. I mean, all of these are our natural foods, and they have they have some macronutrients depending on exactly what we're talking about. So they're going to have some proteins, fats, and carbs. They're going to have micronutrients in it. So there's vitamins, minerals, and phytochemicals, and that's the bulk of what we should be eating. 
some of those foods also do have anti-nutrients in them. However, in comparison to that, what we're, what we, the, as a, as an American population, so I can't really speak for the diets of many other countries, but as right. an American population, what we're eating is whatever is the fastest and easiest thing to put in our mouth, regardless of any kind of nutrient, anti-nutrient. Uh, you know, in order for something to have nutrient, to have an anti-nutrient, it also has to have nutrients in it. So a lot of our food is devoid of all of that. Right. And that's, well, where we, that's where we, our health system has gotten into the predicament that it's in. Yes, and so the SAD, the standard American diet, is is appalling. So I agree with you on convenience. Because I have training as a cook, worked for years and years and years as a cook, cooking dinner at home is just what happens here. It doesn't, I mean, rare, on occasion I'll buy convenience things because I know that there's this one's got volleyball, that one's got softball, we're home for 15 minutes. But that's not at all the the norm. It's a rare thing, right? Usually, all that means is I bought preformed frozen hamburger patties at the butcher. <laughs> mm. um, there's another very real problem now in the probably the world, but I again in the U.S. and that is the cost of everything. Yes, gas here has jumped thirty cents in four days. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's affordable is the packet of crap, yeah. the bag of highly processed sugar and probably seed oils and hydrogenated something or other with actually no real food at all in the bag for 99 cents. And it will fill you up and you'll feel satisfied. <laughs> it won't do a thing to make you better, but at least you'll feel like your tummy's full. And I recognize that that's an actual for real problem. When your fixed income is increasingly going more and more and more to gasoline just to go to work and get that fixed income, that's a real problem. And that and there is no easy solution to that. And you you... I don't buy steak, even when gas was affordable. I didn't buy steak all the right. time. It was a it was a special thing. I was like, well, I don't know. It's a real special thing. So, I mean, I this you're not an economist, and I'm not even sure an economist has an answer to this. But from the example of I don't want to eat the nuts, I'm going to go get the peanut butter. Well, generally, the commercial peanut butter has sugar added to it, so mm-hmm. you. Since sugar is in every, colloquially, sugar is in everything that you buy, you right. end up, we end up eating too much sugar. So I would, I would say go, if your grocery store has that very handy nut butter maker machine, mm-hmm. go get that. Because, boy, that's really tasty. You know, that tastes good because you just right. milled it. It's like, wow. That's, plus, you get the benefit of not having sugar. You don't want nuts, you eat the nut butter. Um for those people, and there's a lot of them who say, boy, you know, my resources are thin. What can they, how can they get a decent amount of protein in their macronutrients without having, you know, okay. So here's, this is a, this is a complicated answer, I think, to a simple question. How do you get simple protein? How do you get lots of protein affordably in your diet without going down the line of these Maybe highly processed things like soy. I don't know that much about tempeh, but I know that it's made from soy. So do we have a problem with soy? Um, Okay, so there are two questions here. Do we have a problem with soy? I would say soy in its whole most natural form, like edamame, I think we have benefits. Um, When we start processing soy and getting, you know, soy is found in lots of different things as an emulsifier called soy lecithin. Um, And so when we start getting into those processed soys like soy milk and soy protein powder and um, lots of soy processed soy vegetarian foods, I think that we've lost a lot of the nutritional benefit in in soy. Um, Soy is, you know, there's a long list of issues with soy um, if it's eaten in large amounts for sure so it can bind to estrogen receptors um, and mimic 
estrogen. So for people who have any kind of hormone challenges, it, it's a real problem. Um, soy has goitrogens in it. And so goitrogens are a type of anti-nutrient that can bind, that can block um, the absorption of um, thyroid hormones. So there are some issues with soy. Um, I would say for the person, you know, so to say, to blanketly say that you should never eat soy, I don't necessarily feel like is correct. For the person who may be, you know, getting some edamame as an appetizer or something for them to nibble on at a party or a gathering or as an appetizer before they're cooking their dinner or, you know, whatever the case may be, I don't think that's necessarily problematic. I definitely don't encourage um, soy milk as a dairy alternative because I think that's, that's, um, I don't think there are any nutritional benefits for that. It's really just kind of a filler. And in fact, it can go against, it can work more of, of an anti-nutrient whenever you're going into the soy milk, soy powder kind of things. Um, so across the board, I can say that soy has probably more harmful effects than beneficial effects, but it really depends on what kind of soy we're talking about. So soy in this form of tofu probably could work. Um, I wouldn't recommend it every day, but you know, so it kind of depends on how much processing has happened to um, to the soy before you're eating it. You you mentioned uh, something that that interferes with the thyroid, and I can't say the word you said, but it made me think that there's probably a women at a particular age where thyroid issues become a problem may want to avoid soy for that reason. Mm -hmm. I know that at least. The autoimmune disease Hashimoto's has very specific problems with the thyroid. So eating things that are going to mess with that, probably not a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I didn't know that part. So that's, that's interesting. So fun fact is that I actually have Hashimoto's and Dude. wrote a book about um, a Hashimoto's diet. So yes, I would definitely avoid soy if you have Hashimoto's. My wife has Hashimoto's and because of that, uh, we've gone to, so I, in addition to being a chef, I'm also a baker and bakers bake with gluten because that's what we do. Hi. So I have learned, learned two things, learned how to bake gluten free. And in the process of doing that, I'm, I have said before, gluten free baking is spectacularly more complicated than gluten baking. Now, Absolutely. People who've never done that look at me like, no, 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 it's not true. Well, <laughs> fine. Yeah. You've got 45 different kinds of gluten-free flour. Go make something. Yeah. Gluten flour, you got two. Better all-purpose. So have at it, Sparky. Um, it's harder. It's, it's I don't mind the challenge. Much more of a science. Um, but it, it is a science, and you and you have to know how you, you have to know how to Write your recipe, take notes, observe what was going on. And that requires just lots of knowledge, but that's another show. Um, let's. Uh, w there's a few other, I think, anti-nutrients, maybe. One of them sounds like something in wine, which is tannins. And then mm -hmm. something you mentioned, lectins. And then I want to just real briefly talk about leptins. And then I have another, I want to get into some other part of the show. So tannins is that's is it the same as the thing in the red wine that makes it red and tart? Yes. Yeah, so tannins are um, a, a chemical, a natural chemical found in things like wine and um, tea, are, are probably places that you find tea. it most commonly. I forgot about tea. Yeah. So um, and tannins are kind of what give the um, the drink a little bit of bitterness. So that's definitely what makes tea bitter. Um, and so, again, I think that this goes down to that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have tea at all, but or or wine, um, because you know as we know, red wine has some benefits to it. You know, if if consumed um, sporadically. Um, so I, I think that yes, they do have anti nutrients in them, um, and but it, it's. It's not doesn't necessarily mean that we can't have it at all. We just need to have variety. And and so lectins isn't lectins in tomatoes. Lectin is in tomatoes um, and beans. I'm pretty sure. 
And there is a doctor, he's pretty well known, I can't remember his name right now, um, who is really anti-lectins. Um, and he's, he, you know, really says that everybody should, no one should be having them at all. Um, I don't agree with that at all, because it really does, you know, anytime, unless you have, unless you know that you, and you would only know by experimenting, because there really aren't tests for this sort of thing. But um, unless you know that something is causing a problem, then ultimately we don't want to, you know, your diet should be as varied as possible. So we don't want to limit something or eliminate something just because it might, could potentially cause a problem if you ate it in large amounts. You know, so like goitrogens are um, a component. They're an anti-nutrient found in things like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cabbage. And we talked about soy, um, mustard greens. And that, you know, if you eat them in large amounts, like if you're eating pounds of them a day, yeah, it's going to cause problems. Um, but there are ways with, with goitrogen specifically Cooking it, it's going to decrease the goitrogenic effect, which will block thyroid hormone. So it doesn't mean that we can't have it all. Um, I wouldn't probably, you know, would guide someone against eating a pound of broccoli if they have thyroid issues, but people aren't doing that anyway. And I kind of feel like if you eat broccoli, you're going to get probably more benefits from it than you will um, things that are going to work against you, unless you know for sure that you have issues with goitrogens, which no one actually knows that 100%. Hmm. And last one, and then move on to a different part. What's what is leptin? Leptin is another type of anti-nutrient. Um, and I'm sorry, no, leptin is not an anti-nutrient. Leptins. So leptin is a hormone um, that helps the brain understand when it needs to have food and when when it's when it no longer needs food. So are there, so I, th I think this comes into, I think Michael Pollan wrote about this idea with, and it's been a while since I read his book, but if leptin is blocked or unable to communicate between the brain and the stomach, then people are just going to keep eating because they don't feel like they're full. Is that the problem? Right. So, yeah, so if they have a resistance to leptin, and I'm pretty sure this isn't something that I use in my practice, which I can't do lab draws um, as a yeah. dietitian in Louisiana, but uh, I'm pretty sure that you can test for leptin. But if you have leptin resistance, um, the roundabout issue is that um, it can decrease your ability to suppress appetite. So you're going to end up you, you're going to end up eating more with leptin resistance um, because um, so it, leptin there's leptin and ghrelin so I, I think I just said it backwards leptin is the hormone that tells your body your brain that you are full ghrelin is the hormone that tells your brain that you are hungry so if you have leptin resistance it means that your brain is not getting the signal to tell your brain that you're full and that you no longer need to eat. And so you will continue to eat and it, it will affect appetite, making you more um, susceptible to eating larger portions and not recognizing your hunger satiety um, levels. Is there, so without getting too far into the weeds of diabetes and insulin, I know that it is possible for insulin resistant folks to eat in a way that over time they can fix their insulin problem. Is there a way to eat or food choices? That's probably a better word. Are there food choices to make that can lower or reverse leptin resistance so that it functions as it should? Um, that is a really great question. Um, and, and I can't say that I know, that I know exactly the answer. And I don't know if, I don't know the answer because the answer is, you know, we're still trying to find that answer or if I just don't know the answer. I don't know if the medical world has definitively been able okay. to find that. Um, I well, will that's say, right. I mean, 
Well, but we definitely can. We know that there are lots of things that can affect insulin resistance. And you right. can, in fact, um, get your body into a place where it becomes less resistant to the insulin that your body is producing. That's without a doubt. That's for sure. Um, leptin is a little bit newer to the scene. So there's a lot of research going on. Um, and I know that there are some medications that are trying to be developed to um, decrease leptin resistance, but I don't know for sure. Um, that's something that I haven't looked at in a long time, so I can't definitively answer that. Well, look, now I have a way to have you on again, and we can talk about leptin. <laughs> I'll gladly do All that. All right. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. I do have a, a little portion I want to get to, I just want to at least talk about one thing that has nothing to do with eating and everything to do with improving human health. And this is a whole show, so you're going to be corralled. And that thing is good sound sleep. Oh, goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. So, um, in my opinion, so for a long time, I always said, you know, nutrition is the best way to get good health. But I have um, retracted that statement or that belief. And I now know that sleep quality is the foundation of wellness. And I say that all the time. The quality of your sleep is foundation of wellness. So if you have sleep apnea and you are in fact, so we think about sleep in quality and quantity. So quantity means that if you're, you know, burning the candle at both ends and you're going to bed late and you're waking up early and you're doing this over and over and over, that the quantity of your sleep is not enough. So, you know, seven to nine hours is what the recommendation is. Um, and if you're getting less than that on a regular basis, that could pose, it could eventually pose health problems. But quality of sleep is also important. So if you have things like sleep apnea, um, you, can, you may be sleeping or laying your head on the pillow for that seven to nine recommended hours. But if you're not, if the quality of your sleep is not good, then you're still posing, um, you know, you're still getting yourself into the avenue of having health risks because right. your quality of sleep is not good. We'll talk about that when you come back on too. Okay. All right. Uh, this is just a little short answers part, but this is kind of a little fun little bit of the show. Of the five flavors, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, or umami, which one's your favorite? Oh, gosh. Um, probably either sweet or umami. What's your favorite food? Um, I'll say my favorite flavor is spice. So like everything to be spicy. That's not a food though. Um, you know, I ask people this all the time whenever they come in my office, what are some of your favorite foods? You know, I, I thoroughly enjoy, and this is going to sound ridiculous. I'm going to say it, although I know how ridiculous this is going to sound. Um, but I enjoy salads a lot because of the way that you can have just so much variety. You know, like I could eat, you know, 10 salads in a row and every single one of them can be completely different. And, um, but almost all of them would have some kind of spice element to it. So whether it has um, some kind of, you know, sriracha based salad dressing or it has jalapenos in it or wasabi or something, it's going to have some kind of spice to it. All right. That makes sense say, for. Um, I do not love vegetables. I know that sounds ridiculous because I just said that like salads, but I didn't grow up eating vegetables. My mom didn't like vegetables. And so she never made us eat vegetables. And so over, you know, the course of my, you know, career as a dietitian, I have, um, 
found a way to make vegetables enticing. And I, I do eat vegetables every day, you know, just mostly with every meal, even for breakfast. Um, and on a lot of days on most days, but um, I would inherently say that I'm not a vegetable lover. All right. So you maybe have preempted the next question. What's your least favorite food? My least favorite food. Um, you know, I've, I've said for a long time that I think olives will ruin anything. I mean, I, I love food, but I'm not an olive fan. I've, I've, I can eat them a little bit more now than I ever have in the past, but not an olive fan at all. What sound do you love? Um, what sound do I love? You know, I love the sound of a babbling brook. Um, I actually love the sound of my 14 year old son calling my name from his room. Mama! It used to drive me crazy, but as he's getting older and I realize he's not going to be there, you know, too many more years, it's, it's becoming more exciting for me. What sound do you hate? Um, you know, besides the obvious things like fingernails on a chalkboard, um, what a sound that, that I hear just about daily that drives me crazy is the sound of a faucet running to wash dishes. So this is shows I'm so old school that if I'm going to wash dishes, I'm going to fill up part of the sink and I'm going to wash the dishes and then I'm going to rinse the dishes. And then, but to have just a faucet running to wash dishes drives me crazy. <laughs> what gets you excited? What gets me excited? Um, I get excited whenever someone, um, starts to believe in themselves whenever I can see the transition and someone believing in themselves or understanding that like building their own confidence through things that they've done or things that they've experienced and learned that gets me very excited. What turned you off? Um, someone who has poor integrity. So as you're close to New Orleans, I'm, this is a targeted question Not really everybody gets this. What's your favorite food indulgence? Okay. Um, you know, I'm a chocoholic, so I, I would indulge. If I'm going to indulge in anything, it's most likely going to be something chocolate. Really dark, rich chocolate. If you wanted to, if you're asking for, about something more specific to Louisiana culture, um, it would probably be boudin. Oh, yeah, I'll be right there. <laughs> yeah, I could, I'm pretty sure I could eat my weight in Buddha if I, if I really tried to. Um, two things. How can people follow you? And is your uh, Hashimoto's book available for people to buy? Yes. Yeah, so um, my Hashimoto's book is called Hashimoto's... Oh, what's the name of it? Um, the Diet for the Newly Diagnosed. So it's essentially an elimination. It, it walks you through an elimination diet. Um, so it's Hashimoto's Diet for the Newly Diagnosed, and it is available on Amazon. Okay. Um, and people can follow me through, uh, I have, my social media is through Facebook, and I also have um, Instagram, and both of them are The Unconventional Dietitian. Okay, and no website or anything? I do have a website. It's theunconventionaldietitian.com. Of course it is. All right. Well, I'll put. I know you. I know you. You got a hard stop here, so uh, I'll put the links to the two social media things uh, sites and the um, web page on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com/slash/196. And I have more, but you got to go. So thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate yeah, that. We'll do a follow up whenever you're ready. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that would be good because there's. There's more I want to get into, but I think we have to sort of lay the foundation. Yeah, when we start so, talking, Christian, we could talk. I mean, literally, could talk all day. There's so much to explore. That's okay. Well, I'm, I'm pick the day. I got all day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right, folks, that's gonna do it. I'll put Daphne's website link and the Amazon link for her book on the show notes page culinarylibertarian.com slash 196 is chocolate 
one of your indulgences? Love the chocolate, but not the sugar? Bar and Cocoa, a new affiliate, offers a line of keto chocolate. <laughs> yeah, it's high percentage cocoa mass, which means there isn't very much sugar, but there is a whole lot of flavor. Check out the selection of artisan chocolates, including single-origin chocolate bars, with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash ketochocolate. See the website for details about free shipping. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash ketochocolate for your keto, chocolate, and artisanal chocolate needs. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. And thank you to my Patreon supporters. I appreciate you as well. Support the show as a patron or with Bitcoin or fiat options at culinarylibertarian.com support. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and leave a rating and a review there as well. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.